Welcome back, loyal listeners, to a special edition episode of the Listen In Podcast. It is the year 2021. Jake and I have been at this for coming up on six years now, and we are here to give you a quarter one music recap. Jake, it's been a while. How are you? It has been some time. I, I wish that listeners, I wish this had been a video podcast over the years. Listeners could see how much 2020, the harrowing year that it was, has changed our appearances. Sean's got a mane of long hair that I've never seen before. Looks fantastic. Look grizzled. We do. We look like straight up radicals, Jake. We, and we are in many ways. And by that, I mean we're not. <laughs> we are. In a much more literal sense, we're not. But I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know, uh, given the year it has been, I, uh, we, sh- we should start probably with an update, time and place. It's the end of March, March 31st, 2021. Um, coronavirus or COVID as it is. So this is an interesting thing I've tracked sociologically. Coronavirus, as like a phrase, has kind of gone by the wayside. And I'm surprised I even just said it. People don't, it's like a year on, like if you listen to the podcast from last March, I'm sure we're calling it that more than COVID. And if you track the progress through the year, COVID became the operative term. And and not COVID-19, just COVID. COVID. And I guess I, I can't say I'm surprised because a lot of the time, you had these people who were like, well, don't, didn't you know coronavirus could be any flu-like virus? It's like, all right, asshole, COVID then. Fuck you. <laughs> like, I get it. There's <laughs> distinctions. So uh, we, were, we were trying to figure out, because it has been so long, listeners, it's been three full months and a little bit of change since our last episode. Um, I don't remember if I told people on the last episode, but I, I had the bug itself wow back in december um i'm fine everyone is fine my girlfriend and i both had it and she was probably sicker than i was but we both got through it fine um but it is no joke she was like legitimately sick um and we're okay now three months later and i was just telling sean before the podcast something we both have observed is these new like phantom tastes new tastes that i don't know so okay i don't want to you know correlation causation all that stuff this is not scientifically proven i don't know if this is a covid thing um but i have a new taste when i eat like bread or carbs um which is really weird it's a weird feeling and i can't help but think it's associated with it i think it sort of has to be based off of everything you've told me um we know that covid messes with your your sense of smell which is very closely tied to your taste. I would assume this is probably related in some way. I would like to see the research, Jake. If you can hit up the 4chan and 8chan message boards on this, see where Q is at with all the taste stuff. Um, I'm sure there's a very salient explanation about a cabal of globalists led by George Soros that is probably contributing to your taste issues. But I'd like to see the research first. You're probably right. I need to come back to the next podcast, whenever that is, in June or whenever, um, with empirical data. Um, You, Sean, (laughs) have have managed to avoid uh, the bloody bug. I have. And I've done that by retreating even more into myself, um, adopting a hermit-like existence inside my uh, place of, of living. 
but I really don't mind it to be honest with you. I saw a, um, I saw an article today. Um, I didn't read it. It was just a headline where it's like, what about the people who kind of liked lockdown? And I'm not going to say I liked it, but I'm definitely more on the spectrum of like, you know what, if I have to burn a year, um, just kind of hanging out with myself and my girlfriend doing, doing our own thing. I'm probably going to be okay with that, like more so than other people are. So yes, I've avoided it, but it's also come at the expense of literally like any sort of experience or social interaction outside of things that are virtual over the last year. So I think you more than me have experienced some things and like probably continue to like live your life a little bit more than I have. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of why I don't think I've gotten it. I'll, it it very, it's almost definitely why you haven't gotten it. And I think that I'll I'll go so far as to say that I did kind of like lockdown, like in not the context Mm -hmm. that it happened in, I didn't obviously like the fact that there was a global pandemic, you know, or that I had family members who got really, really sick. Um, But I, I am a natural introvert like you. I also enjoyed like the built in excuse. I mean, I think we'd be lying to ourselves if like, who are we kidding? And this brings something up um, that I've been thinking a lot about recently with now that, you know, vaccines are rolling out. It seems that we're maybe on the edge of, getting back to some semblance of normalcy. Um, I mentioned to you before we started recording, normalcy as we knew it doesn't exist. It can't exist anymore. Um, There's no going back. There's only what it is now. And, you know, it's all well and good for someone like me or, or many others who decided to hunker down and basically cut off parts of their life for a, a whole year. Um, a question I'm interested in is what does that do to you after the fact? What is the fallout of deciding to do that for a year on a mass scale like we've seen? Um, and, and I'm actually even interested in this idea of like, was that the right thing to do? Were there alternatives that we maybe just didn't consider because we were afraid or, you know, we felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. I like, I'm not saying one's right or wrong or anything. I just think it's interesting. And I'm, I'm asking like, where do we go from here? What's the impact long-term of deciding to do this for a year? Maybe it's nothing. Maybe within a year or two, it feels normal again. Maybe it's debilitating and nothing's the same ever again. It's probably somewhere in the middle, but I think it's an interesting question at least. Yeah. I think it'll have big time social impacts. I remember I saw you like twice in person over the last entire year, maybe three times. And they were all at a distance, whatever social distancing, all that stuff was going, was in effect, but it was during the period in which the isolation stuff, the quarantine stuff was being taken most seriously by the broadest population, which is interesting because the virus is worse now than it ever was then, but we took it more seriously then, whatever. But um, I remember in those instances, I felt a little awkward and uncomfortable at first seeing people in person, like talking, like the way you make eye contact is different. The way you look at people is different. Like I'm looking at you right now on the screen on 
zoom, but there's a little bit of a remove. You can kind of take in more without committing to the eye contact. And, and the other person doesn't Definitely. know if you're making eye contact. Exactly. You can't sort of prove it or not prove it. There's a freedom in that. And um, I think for someone who deals with social anxiety to an extent, um, there's been good things about people being more willing and able to do hangouts virtually or, you know, establish weekly uh, video game sessions or whatever. And, and I think some of that stuff will, will continue. But I think when we meet up in person, there's going to be a learning curve and there's going to be a period of it feeling really uncomfortable. Or at least for me, I know I will probably get tired out pretty easily by the in-person interaction. I don't think that can be discounted. I, I mean, I just found out through my job that like my whole company is now moving to a more remote like way of thinking, like not that we'll be fully remote. Like I think what I'll be is what they're calling like a dual place employee, which is like, probably once like all the vaccine rollout stuff happens, everything's in place. I'll be realistically like two days a week in the office, like for good. That's Which is, yeah, that's amazing. Like and, both pretty um, cool, but also like I'm, I, I, when I saw that message, I was like, shit, this means I have to like talk to people in person again at work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so for me, I, I actually had a, an incredibly busy year at work. Um, and that actually ended up taking a, up a lot of my time and energy where, again, I was a little more willing to take a step back from social commitments or in-person things because my job required so much of my attention. Um, I've recently accepted a new job that is 100% remote, even when things go back to normal. And that was like, I, I kind of did that on purpose. I was like, you know what? I'd rather not have to go into an office anymore. Yeah. Um, so I did, I did find a, a job that, um, satisfied that. So yeah, I think long story short, there's going to be things that are forever changed. There's going to be things that will probably go back to some semblance of normalcy, but I think outside of like our personal lives, um, the amount of death and, uh, destabilization of, the world that we once knew cannot be discounted and is going to stick with us in ways that I don't think we even realize for a long time. Because for me, I feel like the expectation was ignore, 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 push down, suppress. Don't feel the weight of how many people have died from this or how serious this is. There's a numbness there that I think, um, we're all going to have to maybe deal with in some way. And that, that, that hangs over all of it. It hangs over me. Um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Um, that is going to be tough to parse and, and, and deal with. And it's something, it's a trauma that even if you didn't have the virus, even if you didn't know someone that died, there's a level of trauma that we're all going to have to deal with um, or that will live with us for the rest of our life. People who live through this. Yeah. Um, that is not something I, I think we're talking enough about. I find myself fascinated and scared of what the next decade or two brings in terms of like, you look at the history of our country, you look at the fifties and the sixties as kind of a reaction to world war two. 
and the Cold War and like how that all happened. Like I'm very curious what we have in store for the 20s and the 30s here. Like what historically happens now that we've had um, an event like this that was felt by everybody but is distinct from something like a world war in that we were unable to rally everyone to the same way of thinking about it. In fact, we have a, a country that's divided heavily over in some ways, whether it is legitimate one, the virus and the pandemic and two, like how you respond to it, how seriously you took it. It's going to be fascinating. And I think it like, and a little scary, I think also definitely a little, troubling to think it is and i think um the history books you can't tell the story of this last year without telling the story of january 6th at at the capitol and mm. it's it's actually wild that it's taken us to to talk about this um on the podcast till now i mean as an aside you know i think we mentioned last year we're treating this year a little bit differently with the podcast we're going to do less frequent episodes but it will probably give us a chance to talk about stuff that we care about more than just going through the motions. That being said, it didn't allow us to talk about the immediate aftermath and fallout of the insurrection at the Capitol. I don't think any of us have fully been able to internalize or understand what that meant and what that means going forward. We're still reeling from this virus. That came at the end of an insane election cycle, um, at the end of an insane year that had mass protests, racial injustice, the virus, many, many dead. Where do we go after that, Jake? Something's broken. I don't know that we can fix it. Um, and, and like you said, I'm a, like you said, I'm afraid of the next 10, 20 years. I am too. And I think a bellwether is what happened in January. The surreality of, of that experience um, will live, will, will stay with me the rest of my life. What was your experience watching that, Jake, finding out that it happened in the immediate aftermath? And, and I know this is like a weird thing to be bringing up, but it wasn't that long ago. It was actually only like three months ago, not even. Yeah. But it feels I, like a lot longer. It does feel a lot longer in the way that we kind of collectively bury things like this mentally because we have to, to keep going. So I found out about like most people like on just on Twitter. And then yep. like, I had that feeling like when any of these kind of things happen where you're like, okay, this is a moment, this is a thing. Like, you know, the, the moment when that dawns on you, when you're like, okay, whoa, like this is actually like, this is a thing. Like this is like going to be a bit, one of the big ones. Um, and that hit me. Yep. And while I was working, I just watched the news for the last couple hours um, and took it in. And I think what struck me more than anything was not necessarily, and I want to be very careful with my words, the, the desecration of some kind of the, the national imagery or the national symbolism that is the capital. That's bothersome and that's upsetting, but I, I think I'd be a hypocrite if I said, well, they really disparaged the country because I don't... The people's house, Joe. Right, because I'm not one of these people who is all that tied to the jingoistic ideas of what like those things mm. represent. I think like what struck, struck me the most was how fervently those people believed the stuff they believed 
to yeah. bring them there. And what is most troubling to me is not, it, so it is troubling to me what they believe. It definitely is because it is in some ways diametrically opposed to where I stand. It is more upsetting to me that we live an existence of, uh, there's no, there's just two truths or multiple truths yeah. or whatever. It's an a la carte truth system yep. in the world right yep. now. Pick exactly the truth you want to go by. And what worries me in a moment like that is we are entering an era technologically with social media and the ability of tech to manipulate the way we think and the way we think about each other that in some ways what we know is truth, any and all of us can't be relied upon and it can't be trusted. And, and it started to make me weirdly question myself as well, where I was like, well, like shit, I don't believe in what these people believe in, but where are we that, 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 cause you know, there were hundreds of people there amassed at the Capitol. Not all yeah. of them could have been insane. Not all of them could have been, total radicals maybe the ones who were breaking windows and walking away with fucking podiums were bordering right. on the insane but some of these people had been had been fed a line of thinking so strong and so convincing that they really thought this is what had to happen that's what scared me most not necessarily even what happened but the fact that they were so fervent in their belief i'll i'll, I'll take i'll take that thought a step further in that I think these people, yes, it's, it's really upsetting the level of misinformation and conspiracy theories that, that run rampant. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, you know, you mentioned like, I don't give a shit about the, you know, the Senate or the, this building or what it represents or whatever. Like, I, I agree with you, but I think you're hitting on something that is at the core of this. It's that, these institutions, these systems, um, these people who are meant to represent us, they don't. That, it's bullshit. That, that's a lie now at this point and where we're at. Um, and so much so that there's certain people who hold these positions of power who are like, yep, I'm going to just use these people for, for power, for personal gain. I know this shit's all fake. I don't care they'll believe it. And that will give me more power. That's the scariest thing for me. And I'm worried about what, what's the next iteration of that? What, what's the next thing that, what's the next January 6th? Yep. How many people die then? What, what, what are the after effects then? Because I think I'm a little worried that like, we're going to memory hole this and be like, ah, 20, 2020, that was fucking crazy. And like, it was capped off by, you know, this thing right at the beginning of, of the new year that kind of, I think a lot of people, and I'm one of them, I hope that January 6th was the end of something. Two things. One, I hope it's the end of 2020. And that was the last sort of like, that year was terrible. And I hope it's the end of this idea of like, white supremacy, sort of like having a voice and having power. Um, that's the, the most positive way to look at it. The um, most cynical way is this is a harbinger of something else to come. And I really hope well, it's not that. That is what scares me about this next decade. Yeah, man. I mean, take a look at Georgia where you have a whole new era of what people are basically calling modern Jim Crow voting mm -hmm. restriction laws being enacted because of this misplaced fear 
that this election was stolen somehow, despite the fact that, you know, Republicans in power in Georgia at the time who certified the election said it was not. But you know what? Like, that doesn't matter. The truth is meaningless in comparison to partisanship and in comparison to the power grab that is politics. It's totally beyond the pale. And what's crazy to me is like, I'm trying to think of the way to convey this feeling, but when they showed the footage of people breaking into the Capitol and like walking in, it felt like seeing into a part of a video game you're not allowed to get to. It, 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 it's like a glitch. It yeah, was a glitch. Yeah. It felt like, like a glitch. And it was like, oh, like I always had this assumption. And I think this is not a novel sentiment that I'm about to say. I always had an assumption that if you wanted to break into the Capitol, you'd probably be killed before you did it. Like it would, it would be pretty much damn near impossible. They did it like easily. Like it didn't take much. Easily. Very easily. I know. And, and kind of ran rampant and wild. And again, my whole thing is not so much like respect for that building and respect for what it represents, right. which I think has its place and is important to a degree. It's more just there's the illusion. You know what it was? And people compared it to 9-11 in a way, which I want to be careful with also, because I think the severity, the lives lost, they're totally, they're kind of apples and oranges. But where I think it is similar to 9-11 is that it has this effect of like, oh shit, like I kind of just assumed that couldn't take place. Yeah, that's a great point. I kind of just thought like, oh, there's like so many checks and balances. That'll never happen. That couldn't happen. Like we've got it under control. No, we have the illusion of security is what we have. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think that's something that we've seen in the 21st century that like this idea of America, this idea of these institutions and systems is not what we thought it was. And we've just seen thing after thing that back that up. Um, Yeah, and you know, one of the things that was so striking to me these people show up, they break into the Capitol. One of the clips that I find so hilarious is once they get in there, they follow the velvet ropes and, and, and they're yes. like taking pictures like fucking tourists or like people at Disney World. And it's like they don't, they didn't even know what to do once they got in there, except for still like follow these rules and, and go through like the maze of velvet ropes. I, I found that so funny in ways that I can't even fully explain. Um, like you're, you're, you're staging a violent coup and you're still like going through the velvet ropes and taking pictures of the, the, the paintings on the wall. That is so funny to me. That comes down to the cognitive dissonance that these people are faced with, which is that they, they're constantly at war in their own minds. I would have to assume with these, these sort of opposite notions about what the country is it's both evil and controlled by this cabal of of liberal globalist pedophiles but it's also (laughs) yeah it is also sean something to be respected and and the Mm. entire history of it is to be respected to include pictures of all the presidents up on who 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 were not controlled in this way they they, it was different then this this so there's this like there's got to be so much cognitive dissonance because in their minds they're like, we're, we're taking debt. We're taking the country back. And then you get into the yep. halls of the Capitol. And it's like, dude, like this is, 
you're in the halls of like the elite of the control. Like this is what you're railing against. Yep. And now you're respecting it because of this like history idea, this rose colored glasses the, of history. The mythic past, Jake. It's, it's a powerful thing as you'll see in this Adam Curtis documentary that we're going to talk about in a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, I totally agree. I mean, we could go on about this for forever because it's, it's very upsetting. I think we're going to be feeling the after effects of this for years to come. Speaking of cognitive dissonance and surreality, Jake, how about the fact that in this time between our last podcast episode and this one, our guy Tom Brady wins his seventh Super Bowl. In the first season, he leaves the New England Patriots, our team that we root for, that we've rooted for for our entire lives. We watched him win six Super Bowls with Bill Belichick and the Patriots. He leaves, and in the first season that he leaves, he goes and wins another one. Let me ask you this, Jake. Is the world a simulation? Um, <laughs> is any of this real? Um, do sports only exist for our benefit? Your thoughts? <laughs> for, for anyone wondering, <laughs> if you're a first-time listener, a long-time running theme and running joke on the podcast when we talk about sports is the fact that we grew up as New England sports fans during the – salad days of New England sports <laughs> fandom. Like just like the, the an insane amount of championships over the course of a comically small amount of years. Um, and we often say that it has given like the, with the simulation theory idea that a life is just projected before you for your own enjoyment <laughs> as, as textbook overthinkers and analyzers and warriors um, we have sometimes come to the conclusion that perhaps the fact that our favorite team won Super Bowl after Super Bowl was evidence of this theory. That there, the, so uh, I think you know, to to the jury's out, Sean. I don't know. I can't. Uh, maybe we are in a simulation. I don't know. I, I I come in and out of. Let me ask you this. Go ahead. Would it have been more exciting if Tom Brady had stayed with the Patriots last season and won another Super Bowl with the Patriots? or that he left and won one immediately with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is like more interesting to you. Left which one would you have rather seen? I would have rather seen him win with the Patriots, but I think the fact that he won in Tampa year one, just like first try off the hip shoots and, and wins another Super Bowl is a more interesting storyline at, at large. It's more interesting. It's more exciting. And it does more for his legacy and the mythos of Tom Brady than if he had won a seventh with Belichick and with the Patriots. Absolutely. I think he's going to win another one Definitely. too in, in, in his career. I think he'll win another one. You think he will? I really do. I honestly do. He might too. I think he might too. This guy's a freak. It's, it's unbelievable. And maybe life is a projection for only our enjoyment. It might be. It might be. Um, so yeah, the, the any other big events that happened, Jake? So how, how was your Christmas, by the way? I, I like that really quick. I like that our big events are the insurrection at the Capitol and Tom Brady winning a Super Bowl. Those are the two big events. And COVID. And COVID. COVID too. Yeah, COVID too. No, I, I, it, it sums it up. You know, we're, we're three months into the year. That's pretty much what's happened. Yeah. Any, any other noteworthy event? I mean, I'm getting a new job. I mean, yep. other than that, like, you know, nothing really, right? No, we continue on and we continue to, to listen to, to music. The, all, although, 
possibly in different ways, wouldn't you say? I, I would I would think so. So let's let's get into our our quarter one music recap. So as of today, we are recording this on March thirty first. Um, we are wrapping up the first quarter of the year. I would say my analysis of the first part of this year has been it's been a pretty weak music year. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for this. Well, I think the core issue is the fact that COVID ravaged the music industry. And I would assume there's a lot of music that's waiting to be released that is just being held back until touring can commence again. And that the environment's a little more conducive to music and making money from that music. Um, So for that reason, I think it's been a little light in terms of like, great releases i also think the first quarter of the year is notoriously like slow to get off the blocks um last year wasn't so much that 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 case i think there's a lot of good stuff that came out in the first few months but it's been light in my opinion what what about you like how totally what have you thought what have you thought about the quality and like how are you approaching music listening so far this year yeah, so I, I will say that I agree with you. It has been light to start the year. I think all the reasons you mentioned are valid. I think also coming out of 2020, there are probably a lot of bands and artists who like, maybe they have a group of people they usually play with. Or if you're in a band, you have your band. And throughout 2020, you probably get together a lot less and maybe like aren't so tight right now and like maybe have not written new material. So I think that that is a potential reason. Um, but yeah, January and February in particular, in particular, were especially sparse in terms of music releases, which I have kind of leaned into, I will say, as mm. not just an excuse, but like as kind of the backdrop to what is where I've been at with music listening, as we talked about last year. Um, a through line of the podcast over the years has become like, where are we at with listening to music? 2016, 2017, maybe we listened to every new major album that came out. And like, maybe we still get kind of close, but I think I especially have taken my foot off the gas in that respect and tried to allow myself to find albums I'm going to like and just enjoy and listen more from that perspective rather than keep up. I, I, January and February, I had pretty light listening months overall, which is, which is maybe another reason yeah. for no podcast for a while. Agreed. Um, so I think, I think I've still done actually a decent job of staying up to date on what's you have. out. You have. Um, I'm not listening as much to each of those releases as maybe I would have in the past. Sometimes it's a one and done situation. Sometimes it's like, you know, tw- twice at most. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really just not feeling it. Or there's some diamonds in the rough. There's some gems where I'm like, yeah, actually, this is exactly what I need right now. But I agree with you. I think. Definitely last year and into this year, I've been less uh, willing or able to really make music listening what I'm like prioritizing or all about with like my day to day. Um, There's so many reasons that, you know, getting older, having to spend more time and energy on work or personal relationships, or, you know, whatever, like other things I'm interested in. I got more into video games last year, whatever. A lot of, lot of different reasons that have little impacts on that. I've still been checking in on things that I'm like, you know what, maybe I'll like this. 
there hasn't been a whole lot where I'm like, yeah, I love this. This is like transcendent or like one of the best albums I've heard. There's some things here and there, but like for the most part, if I'm making a list of like my favorite albums of the last five years, I can't say there'd be a whole lot from this year that would make even the top like a hundred. Um, and again, maybe that's just because of where I'm at, but like music has been, it feels like I'm scraping some kind of bottom of a barrel to just get like the dregs of what I would have gotten like easily in years past. And we'll talk about some of them in a little bit. There, there's stuff I, I really like some things I even love it's harder to come by now. And like, I'm trying to make sense of that and um, be okay with it, I guess, because I know there's going to be good stuff in, in the next half of this year or even next year, or like once things change in, in my life, maybe it'll, it'll change with music, but yeah, I'm with you. Like it just hasn't been as much of a priority and I haven't found as much stuff that I love. And how do you how do you feel about that though? Yeah, I think it's a good question, and for me, it's also mixed with. I think, as we've gotten a little older and maybe matured a bit, a way that I am different now than like twenty two, twenty three year old me, is, I think I perhaps don't idolize these musicians as much as I used to. Yeah, I don't think one. I'm, I don't have as much of the hero complex there. I still respect the hell out of them. I still love the output. I still am very interested in the craft. Certainly albums still compel me as like a way of releasing art. Um, but they're, especially with contemporary musicians, there's less of that impulse with, for me now where it's just like, okay, like these are actually just people my age making art. Like they don't, it's kind of like in the same way where I probably wouldn't buy a sports jersey anymore. You know, like mm. I, I'm probably not going to wear a jersey of someone who's six years younger than me just because it feels a little strange to, to hold them up in that esteem. So the way in which I view music has changed a bit. It doesn't change the enjoyment of the actual listening experience when I lock into an album I really like, but I do think it changes the view that this is this crazy thing that like, I can't, how did someone make this? Cause I don't feel that way anymore. I, I mean, with the exception of some real pieces of absolute genius, you know? So you're, you're kind of saying the mystique that maybe allowed you to lock in a little bit more or dare I say, lie to yourself a little bit about how important this thing is is not really the case anymore because this, this is, you bring up a good point where it's like, I'm not really going to wear someone's Jersey. That's been something that happens to me when I watch sports now where I'm like, I'm older than a lot of these people, or at the very least I'm peers with them. And that does have an effect on how you watch it where you're like, well, I'm watching the NBA and I love basketball. I love the NBA. This is their job. And I don't feel like putting in my all every single day I go into my job. I for sure know that they don't. Um, that has an effect. And I think it's the same deal with this, where you can kind of see music as a business. You can kind of see the economics of it and how it can hurt people. Um, you can kind of see it as like, yeah, these are just peers like doing their thing. That mystique has been gone a little bit. I, I totally get that. I think that's part of it for me too. 
so with, with, with all that being said, Jake, do you find yourself still having that mystique with older artists? Absolutely. And do you still, you do. Okay. That's interesting. So you're, you're still like, well, I can still hold up these people who were making these records back in the sixties or seventies as these icons of like this sort of untouchable rarefied air, but the people putting them out now, it's like, eh, those are just like people. I think it's hard to separate your thinking about something from the prism through which you first experienced it. Like, so when I think about the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, I still love that music as myself, 28 year old Jake now in 2021. But I also, that's cut with all these other emotions that are associated with 14 year old me or 15 year old me or, you know, uh, college me really getting into that stuff. And just like the, the more kind of like idle status I gave plus all the history. The tough thing is, Mm -hmm. is that it's like with sports or whatever, you know, you talk, you think about, someone like Michael Jordan or to use a way older example, like, I don't know, Babe Ruth or something or like Larry Bird. Half the stuff we know about them is legend. It's myth. It's what history has done to them. And that's true of Bob Dylan or the Beatles or, you know, Marvin Gaye or any of these people where it's like, we have the benefit of all this history and the storytelling is as powerful as the music. The, The narrative is as powerful as the, as the music, just like in sports. And I think, you know, in sports, it's like sometimes I feel a bit of a remove watching just a modern basketball game outside of knowing like, you know, this uh, this will be a historical thing someday. And like, this, we'll look back yeah. on this and we'll kind of form a narrative together about like what this is all about. And when I say together, I mean like as a society. And that yeah. happens with music. And so I think it's hard to remove that in a way. Um, maybe I have a, a slightly more removed thing where I'm, I'm you know what I mean? Like I'm not going to, be as obsessed as perhaps I was as a teenager or something, but, but some of that never goes away. At least it it hasn't for me yet. Yeah. And I think part of this too is like, all right, put aside the narrative we associate with these new records coming out or the artists who are putting them out and the mystique that might be associated with it. When it comes down to it, if the music's good, I'm going to be there for it. And that's been fewer and farther between lately. And um, I, I think this is probably a good transition to, to talk about what we have liked or what we have been listening to or, or how it reflects our listening habits. But for me, this year so far, I have found myself gravitating more towards things that are instrumental or ambient more than a lot. Maybe lately that's shifted a little bit and I'll get to that. But Definitely in January and February, I was like, I kind of don't have the attention span or I'm not in the headspace to be like really absorbing normal rock or pop music or even rap music where it's like, oh, I'm ingesting a lot of lyrics or normal song structures. I've been preferring to live in this ether of like ambient, instrumental. And three that have stuck out to me um, have been one, and this was, I think back in January, this came out, was this Yasmin Williams album called Urban Driftwood, Jake. Yeah, this came out on, um, Mm -hmm. I think at the end of January. And this was really like an acoustic guitar 
solo record, basically. The melodies that exist on here, uh, I think, are beautiful. But what I really like is I didn't have to think about it that much. Um, usually when I talk about like an instrumental album, whether it be jazz or electronic or, or something that's more ambient, usually there's some um, ambiguity with it where I'm like, I don't even really know why I like it, but I like it. This was actually pretty immediate. Um, hmm. Did you get a chance to listen to this one? I did. And so I, my strategy here is I see the albums you've listed out. You've covered pretty much all the ones I've got. So I'm going to just kind of piggyback along with you as I have them. So this is one I listened to once or twice and I don't have like a great deal of thoughts on, but I have more about the, the next couple, but I do think it's really interesting okay. and it's kind of cool to hear somebody with their own distinct take on what guitar sounds like and what it does, because that is, I think, decreasingly, it, it, guitar has become more and more of an established, like what you kind of do with the instrument. And, and Yasmin Williams yeah. seems like someone who's kind of pushing that or taking it in different directions and even has like a differently built guitar, right? I, I think so. Yeah. That, that's my understanding. Um, so yeah, I, other than that, like, did you have other thoughts about the Yasmin Williams album? Well, I just found myself putting it on like at times where I maybe would have put on something else like a Friday night and maybe I, I'm having a couple drinks and I'm playing a board game with, you know, with Kara or something. And it's like, I want to put this album on maybe instead of something else. And like, that was surprising to me where I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm here for this. I don't want those other things that I maybe would have put on. That was surprising to me. And I, I found myself going back to it more than I thought I would in situations that I wouldn't normally. And I think I had a couple of days at work where like I was working on something, I got into a groove with it and I put it on just repeat. I think I listened to it like three or four times, like right in a row. Cause I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling this. So I locked into a really good groove with that. Um, and the same thing happened to me in February when this new Chuck Johnson album came out, Jay, called The Cinder Grove. So you had actually introduced me to Chuck Johnson back in 2017, if you can believe it now, when he put out his album Balsams. And yeah. I remember, I think I was talking to you about like, man, I, I really love just like the sound of pedal steel and you're like well that's interesting because like this dude just put out an ambient album that's like pedal steel yeah so i fell in love with balsams and i have found myself going back to it for the last few years now and it's one of my all-time favorite like instrumental ambient albums it's really really so great I was really, it's amazing so I, I was i was really excited when he put out another one um this year called the cinder grove it's only five tracks long 42 minutes beautiful and it's in kind of the same vein as balsams is um but that's another one that i was just like no i would rather be listening to this than anything else even though it's just kind of this ephemeral like i can't wrap my hands around it maybe maybe that is something to do with a lot of the stuff we just talked about i can't wrap my my hands or brain around what's been going on it just is kind of like this music is you said you've gotten the chance to listen to this one a little bit more though i i have listened to it and i think what you're speaking to is what is appealing about ambient music it is the fact that you can't totally wrap your hands around it as much as something with lyrics or something with a, a discrete 
kind of like melody you can call upon and it allows your brain to kind of operate in a different way while it's on. Um, this is something we've been coming, this, this, not this album, but this, the genre in general and the next album we're about to talk about is, yeah. is an area we've been exploring more just around the house as well, where once in a while we'll throw on just an Eno album, just an Eno ambient record, or like even just like ambient sounds, sometimes just like tones, like meditation music is just yeah. like, not, like not even from an album just like on spotify no no that that makes sense and for me like i have not even the releases that have come out this year that we're talking about here like i've put on more brian eno i've gotten really into um the stars of the lid um in that album in particular um in their refinement of the decline which is an amazing album title and if you haven't listened to that one i highly highly recommend it um all-time ambient record so like those are the ones i've been gravitating towards more more than anything um so yeah like what i think that's just like where our brains are at lately like we we almost can't take the stimulation of these other genres at the moment we kind of need the respite of this ambient stuff where it's just like it's floating there i'm just floating here I, it's just another day i'm existing through yeah and it's beautiful in its own way and it has a lot of merit as art too like if you if the moments you tune into and listen to attentively are really interesting and like i think that's absolutely what it is it, it serves this kind of dual purpose it's both kind of a relaxation tool and music you could analyze if you wanted to um, which yes. brings me to this third one on the list, which is the Floating Points collaboration with Pharaoh Sanders. Pharaoh Sanders, who is a jazz legend. And it, it, this was interestingly timed for me because I, for the first time, listened to the Pharaoh Sanders album Karma, which came out, I believe, in 1969. I'm going to check really quick. It came out in... Oh, hold on. He's, he's old now. He's like in his yeah. 80s, I think. Yeah, so it was in fact 1969. This is an album that, so Karma, talking again about the older album, really appealed to me because um, it reminds me a lot of A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. And in fact, it is inspired by it in many ways. It came out five years later and there are certain melodic themes that Pharaoh Sanders comes back to on his saxophone that are um, similar motifs to what Coltrane plays. There's also this fascinating, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of the guy, but he's one of the instrumentalists on the album who does these vocalizations throughout the album, which are like this high pitched kind of voice where he like strikes his throat to make like, like almost like a, oh, like a yodeling oh, okay. sound in a way. Interesting. It sounds really cool. So anyways, I got kind of into that record and then I saw that this came out and it has totally scratched every itch that I needed from this genre. And I've put it on a lot since it came out. It's really, really good. I love this album. If I were to say what is technically the best album that has come out this year, I think it's probably this one. Um, I put this on for the first time. It was a Saturday morning this past weekend, the, the day after it came out on Friday. And I kind of purposely saved it for like a Saturday morning vibe when I'm like drinking my coffee and, you know, just settling into the weekend and yep. being like, wow, I have a couple of days that are just mine. Like, this is amazing. Um, but I put on this Floating Points Pharaoh Sanders album. I was just blown away. I mean, like, what a combination of talents between Floating Points um, and I'm blanking on who, 
who's so, the guy who's behind Floating Point? Sam Shepard. Okay, and this album He's also the guy behind Floating Point. This album also features, in no small part, the London Symphony Orchestra. Dude, that's what I was going to say too. Not only do we have jazz legend Pharaoh Sanders, not only do we have Floating Point. Oh yeah, they went and got the London Symphony Orchestra to play on here, and the strings here when they kick in, beautiful. This is a lush album, Jake. That's how I would describe it in a lot of ways. It's beautiful. It's sad. Um, I'm going to be listening to this one throughout the rest of the year. And you're absolutely right. It is scratching that itch of like, I didn't know I wanted this until I heard it. And then when I heard it, I was like, I only want this, you know? Me too. And the strings even remind me in some cases, a little bit of like a Johnny Greenwood type of arrangement. Um, yeah. On certain tracks, remind me of stuff he was doing on like a Moonshaped Pool, the Radiohead album. Um, totally. Yeah, fantastic. One of my favorites of the year so far, um, pretty easily. So glad that came yeah. out for sure. Me too. Me too. So the other thing that I found really interesting about this year, Jake, is yeah. I am somehow in on this fifth wave emo uh, discourse that has popped up on Twitter. Uh, my guy Ian Cohen has been, you know, obviously on the forefront of this. He's been retweeting a lot of these bands that have popped up. Um, so fourth wave of emo, Jake, was sort of what I think we made our bones on with this podcast. <laughs> yes. And, you know, modern baseball, the world is a beautiful place, hotel year. Joyce Manor. Know, Joyce Manor to a degree. Sorority noise. You know, we we talked about those bands a lot in the early days of this podcast, and we were a big part of that 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 conversation. And we were loving those things. We, you and I, were even reminiscing about certain memories of popping on like that modern baseball record and just being like, "Yeah, this was like so what we needed at that time." To the exclusion of other people's enjoyment at a party, <laughs> like Sean and I co-opted the speakers to listen to "You're Gonna Miss It All." At full volume. It's like on repeat. An album that I think no one else at the party knew or liked. That's how like obsessed and kind of self-centered yeah. we were about it at the time. A little embarrassing <laughs> in retrospect, to be honest. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. No, because, me like, neither. It's a great memory. Yeah. Um, but we were all in on that. And I got to be honest, over the last couple of years, as a lot of those artists faded from um, making music anymore, breaking up entirely, you know, I don't think we're going to see anything else from Hotel Year. I don't think we're going to see anything else from Modern Baseball. Um, probably Sorority Noise, like you said. Yep. Um, it feels like that time has passed. But in the ashes, uh, a new wave has popped up, as it always does. And I assume if you told me a year ago, like, hey, beginning of 2021, there's going to be a fifth wave of emo. I'd be like, yeah, like, I'm probably just not going to really be into that like i think i think that ship has sailed for me Same here, man i i was wrong and it has been spearheaded by two great eps two of the best eps in this genre that i have heard in years you know what this reminds me of jake it's when you sent me the modern baseball um what's that ep that came out in between those two records oh um, mobo presents it, the it, perfect cast ep the perfect cast ep it sort of reminds me of catching lightning in a bottle, yeah, like that one. And the two I'm talking about is this band called Home Is Where, and they put out an EP called I Became Birds, and then another band called Arms Length, and they put out an EP called Everything Nice. Um, 
And I would say they're both a little bit different in terms of like the sound that they're going for. I, I would say Home Is Where has a little bit more of like a folk influence. They have like some harmonica and um, Arm's Length is a little bit more in the vein of like a Joyce Manor or a Taking Back Sunday where it's like heavier, maybe a little bit more screaming, but like hooks and melody. It's, and they really have a knack for it. It's heavier and it's also just cleaner in terms of its recording. And it yeah. feels a little tighter in a way where Home is where doesn't feel like the band is not tight, but it feels the way it's recorded and kind of like the vibe of the of the recording was a little looser. The Arm's Length album feels like impeccably recorded. I, I really have been yeah. digging both of these a great deal. Home is where, you mentioned the harmonica. I think they're bringing a certain youthful energy and like sense of discovery that's only possible at a, like a certain age. And like the way the harmonica is used yep. is like, in one way so obvious, but it's also like no one else is reaching for it. No one else goes for this. Um, it's used to great effect on like a couple tracks here. It sounds really fresh and you wouldn't think that integrating a harmonica into like alternative rock would sound as fresh as it does here. But I was kind of blown away. Like, I think they have a good sense of humor too. Like if you look at the, some of the track names on, on here, like, the first track name of this Home Is Where EP is called L. Ron Hubbard Was Way Cool. Yes. <laughs> that goes into a song called Long Distance Conjoined Twins, which also happens to be my favorite track on so the good. EP. It's excellent. And is the one that like really like hits you with that harmonica and you're like, oh shit. Um, but yeah, like there's that sense of humor that I think popped up towards the end of that fourth wave of emo and got into a little bit of that like weed emo thing. Yes. Um, but it feels like after meandering for a couple years in the wreckage of that fourth wave, the fifth wave has kind of popped up as like, wow, there's actually like a huge network of artists here that are all kind of under this umbrella. And they're taking elements of these past waves of emo and taking elements of these past waves of indie rock and kind of putting it into this blender so, like, pretty great results, I have to say. And so I've been loving those two EPs. But what's really been, like, opening my eyes to this is there's a playlist on Spotify. And it's actually made by Brandon McDonald, who's a member of Home Is Where. And it's called Fifth Wave Emo or Die. Um, and it has a pretty hilarious picture of Hulk Hogan with a poorly Photoshopped T-shirt that says Fifth Wave Emo or Die. Um, it's 65 songs long, and it has artists like Rookie Card, Young Jesus, Glass Beach, Dog Leg, um, uh, one of my favorites, Cara Cara, Barely March, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Like some of these bands that like the Ian Cohens of the world will constantly be plugging on Twitter. And I listened to this whole playlist, and I was like, you know what? There's a lot of good stuff here. Um, and there was quite a few songs that I ended up really liking. And I was like, I'm going to save these to go back to. So I have to say, Jake, the, the big takeaway is this next wave of email, very solid, building on some of the stuff that we already loved. But like those past ones, we're building on other things. Like there's more here to like than maybe what I would have expected if you would talk to me six months or a year ago about another wave of email that I was like, eh, I've probably outgrown that. Like, no, dude. There's a lot of good stuff here. A couple thoughts. One, I'm fascinated by, and this to me is, is, I think this is like kind of a new phenomenon. 
that is aided by the internet age and just like where emo stands as a genre in rock right now. Is there any genre that has ever done as effective and categorical a job of mythologizing itself? Like emo, people within the scene seem to have this understanding of like the history of emo. It's like an important part of the culture is like what wave is that a part of like where does that fall into the history i've seen graphics that break down third wave second wave like the different subject what's weed emo versus what's like screamo versus what is you know x other kind of emo music i can't think of another genre that does that to the extent that emo does internally like i think that a lot of genres have that done to them yeah i think it's inherent to rock music because i think like white males love to do this shit true and i both do i think we did this with classic rock growing up i think we did this with the beatles and led zeppelin and the rolling stones and bob dylan and all i i think that but that's a little more like you said people applying that to them maybe after the fact the fact that this dude brandon from mm-hmm. um home is where from uh from home is where makes this playlist and is doing like this meta analysis and is sort of like this voice of the wave while being in the wave that's next level shit and i think that does speak to like where we're at in terms of how fragmented music genres are but also like where we're at in terms of the internet and like the fact that these kids are putting out this stuff in very very aware of the context they're putting it out in and they're heavy internet users like it's kind of a logical conclusion, right? I think it is. And, and it, it, my other thought that's related is emo is kind of just like what rock music is now in a way. I, I, that's yeah. not like entirely Crazy true. Point. But if you're going to talk about like scenes that can still emerge in an organic way on a local basis and then bands get like a little bigger or whatever, you don't see a lot of scenes emerge around other subsets of genres because the truth is that a lot of emo artists aren't like these are two bands that sound totally different honestly Mm -hmm. and they're both emo and like there's definitely elements of their sound that can be recognizably you know kind of traced back to the lineage of that genre but it has gotten because of the what is now kind of a storied history with several different waves and all kinds of different genres that have blended into it it has a very emo has a ton of different sounds that can be associated with it. It is right. becoming more and more just like what rock music is in a way. Why? I think that's an excellent point. Why do you think this particular genre <clears throat> is one of the last bastions of rock music or rock music scenes that's able to generate this organic kind of cult following? Because I think it does for younger people what rock music is supposed to do in a way that a lot of more easily commodified versions of rock, like even bands we like, like if you're talking about Bonnie Iver, you're going to talk about the national bands that have gotten really big. Um, they don't scratch the itch of the, of the youthful angst and the kind of like energy, the pure energy of creation. Yeah. A lot of these bands yeah. are bubbling over with, with this energy of like, Man, some of these kids might have first picked up a guitar three years ago. And like, they're, this is like, maybe, these are maybe like the 15th song they ever written. You know what I mean? Like, and they're on these EPs. Yep. Like, there's an energy to that that is essential to what is powerful about rock music. And it is most identifiable in emo now. 
that's where you see it most. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's a really good answer. And, and for me, I was like, I, I was thinking a lot of these are like pure emotion. They're, they're really wearing their heart on their sleeve. It's not in the way you would think of when, when someone says emo music, though. Right. It's all different. It's, it's this spectrum and this, um, it's sort of like this fractured, uh, like, for lack of a better word, spectrum of emotions that are be like, I'm looking, I'm looking through this right now and like Harmony Woods is on here, but so is something like, um, I like, I don't know, uh, archipelagos exactly. or ta taking meds, shell of a shell. Like these are all, they're all doing like different stuff here, you know? Exactly. So I think you're right. I think it's that, and this is something we talked about, Jake, when we were back on that fourth, fourth wave, we were at the, probably the last age you could be like mid twenties, early mid twenties where those emotions still really resonated. Yeah. And I think these bands are just picking up that torch and are like, well, here's, here's like what we're feeling right now. And it all comes out like in this unvarnished, unembarrassed way. It's not pretentious. It's just like, here's what it is. Mm -hmm. And maybe even two years later, a lot of these bands are like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write that song again. Or like, maybe I can't even do that again. That's the beauty of it. It's capturing like these really strong emotions at such a specific point. And that's why I think we see so many of these waves too. It's like, these can only last for so long. And a lot of it also, I think comes down to the, the collective feeling that is creating a scene in either a city or in an area or across the country. So like unified by a genre or an aesthetic. Cause like even through the last few years as I've become a little more exposed to my hometown scene, the Manchester, New Hampshire scene for what it's worth. It's like all these bands love each other and are friends, but it's like this band sounds a little more like a country band. Actually, this one sounds a little bit more like a pop band or whatever. Like this one actually reminds me of like Buddy Holly or whatever. Like they, they all have totally different aesthetics, but they're all kind of friends. And I think by osmosis, like, these we kind of lump them all together into like a scene or yeah. like a certain aesthetic. I think there's a power to that. And, and that even, I agree. And, and that even happened with the last wave mm -hmm. where like, like the grunge. beautiful place sounds, sounds yeah, exactly. 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 Like uh, Joyce Manor sounds different than world's a beautiful place uh, or, you know, any of those bands we had mentioned the last thought um, I want to add to this is it seems like, Philadelphia was the epicenter of that fourth wave where a lot of bands came out of there. Seems like Florida is now the place for a lot of these, which yeah. is, which is interesting. I, I don't really have any thoughts beyond that. I just think it's interesting. It is interesting. Geographically. I guess that band Glockamora, who is like a big influence on a lot of emo yeah. bands were from Florida. Also Tom okay. Petty, who maybe introduced some of the whiny vocals to a broader yeah. mainstream audience. Not exactly emo vocals. You don't know how it feels, Jake. You don't. And, and adults don't know how it feels, Sean. And that's what we're writing songs about. You know what I'll say? I, I listened to Wildflowers for the first time in full at the beginning of this year. It's amazing. Dude, Tom Petty's incredible. He's incredible. Amazing. He's just one so of those good. dudes. Tom Petty was one of those guys who just like – sat down at a guitar and would write like a classic just because he had a knack for doing that. 
And they're so, so good. There are those kind of songs that are like, they're so obvious in a way that it's like, as soon as you hear it, you instantly know it like forever. Yep. And there's, there's, yep. there's a gift to that. Totally. Just, there's something to be said about that kind of thing. 100%. Um, so we talked about a couple like big genre staples that have been resonating with us, Jake. I, I want to talk about some other favorites. Um, and, and, you know, I maybe won't go into a whole lot of depth with these, but I did want to call them out as ones that have stuck out to me and have been ones that I've really, really enjoyed. Um, feel free to, to take this in any direction that you want, but um, I really did like that Pine Grove record that they put out called Amperland. I know Pine Grove has had a soft spot in our hearts since we started this podcast. Um, my, we, I, I don't know like where they stand in terms of like, how how people feel about them now but i really like this record i like kind of like the reworkings of some of those old songs um i i didn't get a chance to watch that short film that they put out um that was a companion piece to it but i, I did have a really good run in early january with that um, yeah, I, I, did you get to spend a lot of time with that or yeah i listened to this a decent amount i thought it was really good i especially um liked their their re their new take on that song overthrown um, which is, was always a favorite of mine on everything so far. Um, they do a yep. really like powerful kind of explosive version of it on this that I really liked a lot. And, then, and that's just one of many things. The rest of it definitely felt like they were playing things a little closer. That one they kind of really reimagined, I thought. I, I agree. And I think um, On Jet Lag was like a needed reworking of that song too it just sounds way tighter and way better on on this one um same with peeling off the bark i think those two those two felt like new pine grove songs in a way because i i was less familiar they, they were a couple songs on on everything so far where i was like yeah these feel like they're kind of blurring into that back half and then to hear them reworked here not even reworked but just like cleaner recording with the maturity of like where they're at now, I was like, oh, these are now like two favorites. Um, so those definitely stood out to me on top of just taking some of the songs from past albums and, and doing different versions of them. So I, I did really like that one. Um, another one, and, and this one actually came out on Christmas day, 2020, but I, I'm treating this as a 2021. We'll is that Playboy Cardi album, Whole lot of Red. Um, at first listen, I was like, this is unlistenable. Like, really? I was like, this, I was like, this is rough. I was like, I don't know what he's doing. It sounds unfinished. Sounds like you just have baked ideas that are like, I don't really know. His voice sounds super raspy, kind of sounds like shit. As I listened more, it was almost like Stockholm syndrome with this album where I was like, I love this. This is actually probably my most listened to album of the last few months in a weird way, just because of the number of tracks. And I was like, man, I, I really want to hear Rockstar Made again. And like his super raspy ass voice to be like, Rockstar Made. Yeah. And like, dude, Metamorphosis with Kid Cudi. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. I was like, dude, how is your voice doing that right now? And like, I don't know, man. There's a lot of stuff on here that I kind of love. And I think we're going to look back, at least I'm going to look back at this like a year from now when we make our lists or back in December, nine months from now, whatever. And I'm going to be like, that was actually like an achievement 
Like that was, I think this is sort of a groundbreaking rap album in a way. I love this. It's, it's, it's one that I spent a little bit of time with and um, definitely uh, enjoyed some of what was going on, but I didn't get over the hump you described from getting into Stockholm yeah. syndrome. I didn't get and there's there. a hump with it. Trust me. It's but like, it, I, you gotta kind of force yourself. It is telling that as soon as you said Rockstar made, I kind of instantly like my brain was just like, Oh yeah, Rockstar made like that. Like hook was in my head. I was like, I, I yep. know what he's talking about. I remember that song from like months ago and now because like, I have not listened in months. I, I can emphasize I, that. Point. I think, I think the way in for anyone who's like, I really don't like what he's doing with the vocals here. Just listen to the production and the beats on here because they oscillate between like just massive like bass or these like silky sweet, almost video game synth uh, melodies. And I find both of them like just intoxicating in a way. Um, there's something about this album that I think is like really special. And even just talking about it now, I'm like, man, maybe, maybe I, I put that on later and like bump to that a little bit. But I, I really did love that Cardi album. As usual with a lot of trap records, what, what I appreciate more than anything about them is that even if I'm not always enjoying it, even if I don't even like it that much all the time, I appreciate that it is like actually a form of popular music that's truly experimental and kind of crazy. Like, yeah, it creates a taste in the music listening population for stuff that's not immediately palatable in a way that you'd think in a traditional sense, which is really fascinating. And, and this came out on Christmas day and was like a big deal on Twitter. Like I saw a lot of people in, in the opinions were mixed a lot of people were like this is trash and then other people were like yo cardi like you did it so it, it was pretty polarizing um i went back and forth but now i'm like firmly in the camp of of kind of loving it but i i do appreciate that because i think i listen I, I end up having more of like a intimate relationship with these records jake but i like that you check them out you're like you know what this is different at least. And like, they're doing some interesting stuff here. So I do, I do. Appreciate yeah, it's, that. it's not always something I want to gravitate back to, but um, I, I see why you would say it's groundbreaking um, because it, it, it's, yeah. it's pretty crazy, especially as mainstream music. It's popular. It is. It's stupidly popular for like what it sounds like actually. Dude, like um, think about showing that to someone 10 years ago and how like weird it sounds like what it really is. I don't know. That's it's an interesting development. You know, and I do have to say, I think Yeezus did a lot to usher yep. in like that sort of sound. True. Um, but yeah, a couple other ones for me, Jake, I really like this Nick Cave album, Carnage, um, especially the song White Elephant. Uh, I think Nick Cave getting away from the bad seeds and putting out like a solo record uh, of sorts. I mean, he was working with Warren Ellis, who is another member of the Bad Seeds, but I think he's leaning into that sort of a um, little more atmospheric, a little less worried about like typical song structures that he got into on his last couple releases like Ghost Teen or Skeleton Tree. Um, so I, I have been liking that one quite a bit. And then, you know, as far as vibes go, Jake, he, Lana Del Rey just scratches an itch for me when it comes to vibes. I mean, 
we we talked about this a little bit over text the other day. You're like, hey, how, are you, how are you feeling about this one? And yeah. I was like, look, I kind of love it. <laughs> like, look, it's not no Lana album, and I'm including Norman Rockwell in this. Yep, is like that special. If you right. take it on its own, you really kind of have to buy into the mystique. You have to buy into the the mythos and the vibe that she's putting forth. Some people don't have the patience. If I'm not in the right mood, I don't have the patience. I found myself in the right mood with Chemtrails over the Country Club. Um, I really love the first two tracks on here. Yeah. Uh, White Dress and then the, the titular track. And then I think I mentioned to you over text. After that, it's just all vibes. And like, I'm there for the vibes. Um, I, so yeah, I've been really liking that one too, despite the fact that like, look, maybe it's just like another Lana album, but I really like it. I really like how on White Dress, she's pushing her voice to a place I've never really heard her take it before. She's doing this like breathy whisper, and like I was really taken aback by that. I was like, "This is cool. This is a little different." It's new. It's different, and it's like at first I couldn't tell if I liked it or didn't like it, but I've settled on I like it. I really with that track, I really do. And she does this interesting thing with the um, at the Men in Music conference, like really. Yeah, yeah. shoehorns in all these words into this. I love it. I love it. Which is cool. Like that's an it's an interesting approach. That like now I will say that yep. there's definitely some Lana by the numbers stuff like you're saying here. Like I think I think it might be Yosemite. Some of those later tracks where it's just like she's going four chord progression classic like sad Lana thing like not even trying yep. on the melody to do something different like there's some songs on here that I think she has written almost word for word before or, uh, or note for dude, note you know what I mean even even the song wild at heart which is fine it's like a decent song actually in the flow of the album but it's like how many times have I heard you like say this exact same thing exactly this. but that being said that's kind of what I'm here for and I it's why you should go in and you don't expect something different from her, you're going to get that itch scratched. And that's like kind of like why I like it there. I always have a corner of my music listening for her and my yep. attention span for her. Yeah. I, with her albums, I agree. I always generally like them. And then I'm like, there's just tracks where you kind of lose me. I do like the song dark, but just a game. I think that's a cool track. That that's one that I actually wanted to call out. That like, look, I think the first two are like, yeah, those are those are standout. But dark, but just the game. I was like, wow, this is actually better than it has like any right to be. She does some interesting things with the chord progression and the melody on that, where it like kind of goes from this very minor vibe to then all of a sudden in the chorus or in some other part of the song, it shifts to totally very major sounding and kind of happy. It, it's this interesting pivot. I'd have to like look at like what she's really doing there, but it's, it, it's different I, than the rest of the songs. It is. And I really like the lyric, the best ones lost their mind. Mm -hmm. It's dark, but just a game. Like uh, there's, there's something about that song that like hooks me. Um, and then Lana, the other one, Jake. Yeah. Really quickly. I was yeah. Gonna say, oh, what, yeah. Lana more than so many other artists is so, and I love this about her and also find it like, a little tiring when I'm not in a lot of mood. She is so dedicated to an aesthetic. So yep. more than yeah. like most bands. And you know, maybe what's kind of cool about her is the fact that she wears that so much on her sleeve because what is music or art than just selling you a certain aesthetic or vibe. But Lana is right on the nose with it. She's like, I am channeling this kind of smoky, loungy, depressing, mm -hmm. like modern take it's on like almost the American dream and like 
that doesn't actually exist. I love that it's this collage of different things that we associate with like this classic American culture that when you try and hold, it's like water, trying to hold water in your hands. You're like, well, no, it just slips away. Like that's Lana to me. But like, it's every album I listen to, I'm like, I'm trying to cup the water. I'm trying to hold it. But like, it's, it's ephemeral thing. And so is she. That's what all the songs are about. It's about trying to hold exactly. on to something Wild beautiful and that you can't exactly. quite grasp. <laughs> exactly. exactly. These next two albums, Sean, that we're about to mention, yeah. are, I think two of my most listened to of the entire year. I think the, the next one you're about to say is my most listened to of the year. They're up there for me, too. And, and the one we're talking about is this Wild Pink album, A Billion Little Lights. Um, so Wild Pink, they uh, are a band... Uh, where are they out of? Uh, oh, jeez, I, I don't know. Is it I New York? I don't know for sure. I think it is New York. I think it, I think it might be Brooklyn. Um, pretty typical. Uh, I don't like them anymore because they're from, they're from Brooklyn. Uh, no. A hard but, turn. Um, yeah, so I remember hearing about this band way back in 2017 when their self-titled came out. And guess what? Our guy Ian Cohen was plugging in. Big and then it, I yeah. finally checked them out when they put out Yoke in the Fur in 2018. And there were a few songs I was like, wow, there's like some real potential here. But it didn't fully hold together as an album for me. And then with this new one, A Billion Little Lights, I feel like they've really hit their stride. And I would describe it as sort of this mix between like almost a death cab for cutie indie rock mixed with almost a little bit of like Americana country-ish things. Yep. What do, what do you think about this one, Jake? I think of it as sounding like a country album slash folk album meets ambient meets the war on drugs. Yes. War on drugs. That's, like that's the, good, yeah, this that's like kind song. of this like kind of big echoey heartland rock vibe, but it's also, it's extremely, I don't know. It's it's almost relaxing, despite the fact that there's a lot going on in the songs. There is like delicate in a way. It is delicate, and so this is some. This album, more than any other, has been listenable because it it captures a lot of where my mind has gone, has started trending towards my interest in music, and that is with like country music, which is not like not to say that I'm a huge fan of like what's going on with modern country, but I've made no secret over the past year of how I've explored more of what country has to offer. And I, I get it listening to this album. I think so has um, wild pink. Um, and I think that there's also some really interesting, like ambience, the wrong word, but almost like atmospheric elements to the music here that I think are really nice texture in a similar way to the ambient albums we mentioned earlier. It lends itself to repeat listens in that way. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of tracks where you can kind of just be like, this is just on. I don't have to think about it too hard. Um, and like I said, nice textures, Jake. <laughs> what is, what's fascinating to, to me is that, and maybe this speaks to <laughs> the different ways in which I have taken in music, is I like this album more than Yoke in the Fur by a good amount, or at least I'm connecting to it more than I did me with too. Yoke in the Fur. I, I just recently, after like um, however many listens to this album, was like took a look on Wikipedia to see how it has done in terms of reviews. People aren't raving about this album. This is not an album that has done incredibly well. It, Pitchfork gave it like a 7-6, I think, where Yoko yep. and the Fair got an 8-1. Um, 
which is just interesting where I, maybe it's telling that that kind of stuff influences me less, or I just maybe trust myself more with what I like. But I, I yeah. kind of, I, I didn't dawn on me until later, like, oh, this isn't like, this is actually not an album that's like a critical darling. It's doing well, but it's not blowing off. You know what I mean? It's not like record of the year potential. Uh, yeah. And I think there's always a challenge with a band who's playing in the space like yeah. Wild Pink is. True, like, true, true. there's, like we were saying with some of the, the fourth wave, fifth, fifth, fifth wave emo stuff, there's a limit to like what just a straight up alternative band, what their reach is now. And I think Wild Pink is kind of experiencing that, which is which is too bad because that's a really good record. Um, another really good one, Jake, that like you said, we've both been enjoying. Cassandra Jenkins um, put out an album called An Overview on Phenomenal Nature. Now, Cassandra Jenkins has been around for a little bit, at least. I think I think she has a few albums under her name. Flew under my um, radar. Not someone I knew about. No, no, not not really me either. I think I remember very vaguely her album that came out in 2017 called Play Till You Win. I did not listen to it, but I think I, I generally remember that one coming out. But this one's kind of a revelation. I guess she was supposed to tour with David Berman um, of Purple oh. Mountains uh, in support of the, the Purple Mountains record. And... Um, ended up not after after his his suicide and there's a couple songs on here that sort of um allude to that and and sort of the fallout in the um healing process that kind of needed to to take place there i think a song like ambiguous norway is one of them um i, I think there's another one that says like like goodbye purple mountains and it's like referring oh, to right. and so yeah. that's sort of um like stitched throughout this but uh i i think there's one particular track on here jake that is maybe one of the best songs i've heard this year so far called hard drive me too man um, that's exactly the one that that i wanted to talk about yeah it, it's on another level it, it's just like i don't even know how to describe it like do you have a good way of describing this song it's it has this kind of like laid back groove that's going on in the background not the background it's it's the song while cassandra jenkins kind of speaks through most of the song with the it's almost not even sung yeah it's almost like a like a story like she's talking about like her conversations with other people and like kind of walking around and experiencing life and then it has the refrain of our brain is a hard drive basically, right? Like our, or our mind is a hard drive. I can't remember exactly how it's yeah. how words are, but it's a, a fascinating song and it, it's my favorite on the album. This, this is an album that I almost forgot how good a run with it. I had like a month ago. And this song in particular was a quick add to my best songs of the year playlist. And I think it's an album that's better experienced than described. It's hard to explain exactly. Like I what's going on could here. not agree more. I, I almost don't want to try because it won't do it justice. I think I, I just want to say, I like it a lot and you should, anyone listening should just go listen to it. If you have it. Totally agree. Um, I'll hit a couple more. Oh, quick. One, one more oh, thing. One more thing about hard drive. It took me way too long to realize that it's sort of a double entendre or pun of like, yeah like our brains are a hard drive like they're almost like a computer but also she she's talking about how she hasn't gotten her license and 
she's having that conversation where the guy's like, have you seen your therapist lately? Like, are you always this anxious? And it's like that drive she's doing is hard. Right. You know, brains are a hard drive. Like this existence is a hard drive, yep. you know? Yeah. And there's like another way, way to too read long it. to be like, Oh, like that's clever. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to, to, to say that. It's a good point. I think it probably took me a while too. And like, cause it's not something that immediately came to mind when we were, but I think maybe I remember thinking like, Oh, maybe is this like a double meaning thing she's going for here? But I, I didn't articulate it as clearly as that. Um, two others I want to hit on real quick. One is the, the Weezer album that got put out this year because Weezer puts out an album like every year, almost every other I year. Know. Sometimes, I Dude, out. I actually think they have another one coming out this year. I'm sure they do. So this album, OK Human, um, it is not like an amazing record, but I think it is interesting and it has some good tracks on it, like Alu Gobi, Numbers. Um, it is everything that is good and frustrating about Weezer at once where it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, hard on its sleeve in a very Weezer way. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it, from what I understand, it was inspired by musicians like Harry Nilsson and some like seventies kind of piano driven musicians. And that comes across. And I think melodically Rivers Cuomo always has something interesting to bring to the table. He's an incredible writer of melody, I think, and just has a knack for writing catchy songs. Um, there's not always all that much substance on a Weezer record. The, the funny thing is with them is you can kind of just pick or choose every few years to kind of check in on them. And that's what I've done with this. That's such, that's such a good point because I, I listened to this once and before I was even halfway through, I kind of decided like, no, this, this Weezer one's not for me. And that's fine because like, I loved the white album that came out a few years ago. And I'm just sort of like, yeah, I will pick and choose with Weezer. This one didn't do it for me too much, but I think part of that had to do with like the mood I was in or the attitude I, I took into it. I'm glad that you're kind of like, yeah, I can fuck with this a little bit. I think the Harry Nelson comp is an interesting one. And I think that's kind of spot on because I think they're doing at least on this one listen I had, like doing a little bit more with like strings or things that yep. you maybe wouldn't have heard on past Weezer albums. But at least that's interesting. Like, I'm glad they're still putting out records. Like, that's cool. Me too. And it's like, I didn't really listen to Pacific Daydream. I didn't really listen to the Black album. Like, I, I barely touched those. I listened once and then put them away. This one, I was like, oh, okay, I dig it enough that I'm going to listen a few times. Um, the other one I want to shout out is this Jasmine Sullivan album, Hotels. Um, I didn't listen to this. It's like really good. I've, I listened again today to when we were going to, cause I knew this recap was coming up and I remember liking it on initial listen. This is getting like some decent buzz. It got like a best new music. I'm pretty mm. sure has been getting some good critical response. And I, I listened kind of just to try it out. And it's a nice concisely written pop R and B album with some interesting elements. There's, there's narrative voice throughout from different women talking about their own like sexual agency and like how sex and their relationship with men impacts their life and relationships and outlook on the world. Um, and then the songs are great. Like the songwriting's tight and catchy and production's great. So I, I've been really in, enjoying this when I've listened. I'm not going to pretend I've listened a ton, but it was one yeah. that, that I came back to a few times and like genuinely enjoyed. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I, um, I'm going to add this to the list because I, I didn't get a chance to, to check it out yet. So, I think you'll like it. I do uh, think you'll like good it. good to know. Cool. All right. Well, I think um, hopefully 
there's some things coming the rest of the year that, you know, we pick up a little bit in terms of like the amount of quality. Um, and, and you know what, Jake, let me quickly run through our release radar right now. And then we'll, yep. we'll round out with a little culture corner. Um, so I, I did a little research here. I got to say, man, it's slim pickings in terms of like premier, premier releases that are coming out. Um, here's what we got on tap for at least the next few months. Um, in May, I guess Mitski soundtracked a graphic novel called uh, This Is Where We Fall. Um, that'll be interesting. I don't know how much like, you know, is this standing in for like a new Mitski album? I, I, I don't fully know, but I'll at least check it out. Um, so that's coming. We got the new St. Vincent album called Daddy's Home coming out in May as well. I listened to the single on that. Seems interesting enough. So that'll be good. Um, we do have Black Midi coming out with a new album, Jake, called Cavalcade, which is a great title for this album. Dude. And I do have to say, both those singles that came out were really good. John L, or I think as it maybe is supposed to be read, John 50, because it's like L is like the Roman numeral. Yeah. And he has that lyric, John 50 came to town, like throughout the, the dude, that song is sick. It's fucking yeah. awesome. Black Midi is a very cool band. Very interesting. Agreed. It actually reminds me to bring up quickly that band that is associated with them in their scene. I think they're called Black Country New Road. Yes, that was another one that came out earlier this year. Yep. That is one I'd be remiss to not mention that I forgot, which I know I'm breaking into yep. release radar right now. But that first album that they put out this year is really cool. If you like stuff like, obviously, if you like Black Midi or if you even like like a Godspeed Black Emperor type of thing, um, cool debut album where they're doing some interesting stuff. That's a good shout. Yeah, that, that is a good one. I did listen to that. Um, definitely worth checking out if you're into that, that scene or that sound. Um, and then June, we actually get a second Lana Del Rey album called Rock Candy Sweet, oh, wow. which I guess she had recorded um, uh, Chemtrails Over the Country Club like right after Norman Rockwell and then held it back because of the pandemic. So she put out Chemtrails now, but then she has more new material called Rock Candy Sweet coming out in June. Oh, wow. um, so that's, you know, pretty prolific by our girl Lana. And then we have a new Japanese breakfast album called Jubilee in coming out in June. And I really did like that single. It's that excellent. They put out. Be sweet. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Really channeling some like, uh, like Fleetwood Mac, like Stevie Nicks vibes in there. Yeah. I think this album's going to be good. So I'm excited for that one. And then looking like longer term, Jake, I think both of these are coming out this year. I don't know when. Uh, but a new Pusha T Ooh. is imminent. And then a new Foxing album is also coming as well. I feel like this Foxing one could be released as a surprise, like almost any day. And they did put out a single already um, and a video that is very worth checking out. It does channel some like D&D uh, &D vibes. But oh, the cool. single is called Speak, Speak With The Dead. Um, it sounds massive it sounds huge they're de definitely like taking the ideas that they were doing on near my god and kind of like blowing them out so i'm excited to see what that band does next um but that that's kind of all i got in terms of like release radar for what i know is coming that's like big big yeah those are some good ones i'm of those i'm particularly excited for 
uh, Black Midi and Japanese Breakfast of the ones you and mentioned. Push. And push. Yeah, Push and Tease, that, that's actually that's <laughs> awesome. King Push. The follow-up yep, to Daytona. For sure. Yep. Um, so, Jake, let's round out. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll step away from music for a second. What have you been into culture-wise, whether it be television, movies, uh, books, since we talked last at the end of December? couple things. So um, I have been, along with Mary-Kate, big, big friend of the pod, Mary-Kate. Big friend of the pod. We have been rewatching The Sopranos. Um, or, mm. the, or the Sopranos, if you say it like a lot of the cast does. Um, right. And before that, we rewatched The Wire. Oof. And so uh, the, the cultural trend I want to talk about is rewatches in general, because I feel like you've been doing some, I've been doing some, mm-hmm. and there's this trend now as podcasts have become just like a completely saturated medium. There are a lot of rewatch podcasts. So I've been listening to Office Ladies, which is Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey from The Office, talking through episode by episode the U.S. Office. They just most recently did Dinner Party, which is entertaining to listen to. Oh. Um, they finally got there, and um, which is just an all-time classic, probably the best episode of The Office. Um, in a similar vein, I found this podcast that somehow was not on my radar that is really cool, um, Talking Sopranos, which has Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher, and Steve Sharippa, who plays Bobby Bacala. Um, oh, my God. Talking through every episode of the show. What? Yeah. Holy shit. I did not know about that. Yeah, and they're up to season like four, I think, but I'm still back on season one. Oh, my God. So I've been listening to that along with it. And then there's also uh, the Ringer podcast, Way Down in the Hole, which is a rewatch podcast for The Wire, but doesn't have like cast members on it. But all that to say, this is like a trend that I, I'm kind of here for. I, I enjoy this kind of podcast. I've been enjoying listening to it. And on top of that with The Sopranos, I've been reading this book um, that is like a cultural, uh, like the kind of a review of every episode written by Alan Sippenwall and Matt zoller Stites. I think if I'm not going to get yep. their names wrong. Um, yep. The Sopranos Sessions is what it's called. So that's, right. the bi- that's one big thing for me is this kind of like rewatch culture that I think is facilitated by podcasts. I, I love that. And uh, I actually just wrapped up a rewatch of all of the Sopranos myself at the, at the end of uh, beginning of this year. Um, I would have loved to have listened to that podcast along with it. I might even go back and check it out, but uh, that is, that's fantastic. I, is, I love that. I will say quickly, it is surprisingly lo-fi. It's like, it's not as amazingly produced as you would assume. And I think part of the, not reason- up to the, the listening podcast standards, Jake. I think it's at about the listening podcast standards. <laughs> I think it sounds kind of like this podcast. That's great. That's great. Um, but it, what's interesting also is that it starts like a year ago right now. It starts like they're, they're responding to like the pandemic in the first couple episodes. And it's like interesting to hear, first of all, wow. those two actors respond to anything. Michael Imperioli comes across. He's like a really smart dude. He wrote some episodes. He is. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Steve Sharippa is kind of like exactly what you think he'd be like. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can, I can imagine. I, that's cool. I got to check that out. Um, 
So that's great. For me, um, it's been three kind of like pillars, Jake. On the one hand, I've gotten back into reading in a big way, especially mm-hmm. over the last month or so. Um, you and I are in a book club with a couple other friends. We've been able to pick some fantastic, fantastic books so far. In particular, I think um, American Pastoral by Philip Roth, the book that we're reading now, has really been resonating. We're about halfway through, and I've been loving that. Fantastic. But in parallel to our, our book club books, I've also picked up this book called Adults in the Room, which is written by uh, this guy who was the, the Greek finance minister during the negotiations in 2015 um, to kind of rework the Greek debt crisis. Um, so I, I kind of have always had like an interest in, in economics and this falls into the, that category. And it also falls into the category of like a, a modern history almost. Mm-hmm. And it's like firsthand account. And this guy was having interactions with people like Angela Merkel, um, wow. Emmanuel Macron, uh, Obama, uh, Bernie Sanders makes an appearance in this book. Um, he's also frequently uh, interacting with the president of the European Central Bank and the head of the IMF and like all these major systems um, that kind of like control uh, a, a lot of the economics of the world. So this guy's really, really smart. Um, it has been an eye-opening read about how these technocrats kind of operate and how they like rule and, and influence the day-to-day lives of many people who have no idea who they are, didn't elect them. Um, but that's just sort of where we're at in, in the world. And that kind of leads me into this other pillar, Jake, which is the documentary by Adam Curtis that just came out. Um, called can't get you out of my head um it's all available on youtube but it was originally made for the bbc it takes archival bbc footage of the last 60 70 years and it's billed as an emotional history of the modern world basically um it will open your eyes to the way things are and why um, and it has had a pretty profound impact on me in the last couple of weeks since I started watching it. I just wrapped it up yesterday. But watching that documentary series in conjunction with reading Adults in the Room um, has given me a new perspective on sort of the institutions and systems um, and people in power that shape our world in a way that is like kind of unsettling. Um, and I'm still working through all the wow. thoughts and feelings that I kind of have about both of these. I can't recommend them enough, um, especially can't get you out of my head. I think this documentary is amazing. I know you're going to watch it, Jake. And Absolutely. We've been talking about it off air, but I did just want to call it out here because that's been I, like a real big experience for me. I'd kind of like to read that book too. Both sound fascinating. Really interesting. They are. They really, really are. Um, I, I think you need to have a little bit of an appetite for like, debt restructuring and like how that all kind of works but well, it's written in a way that is easily understood actually this guy's a real handle on on the subjects and writes it in a way that is compelling like i i have never been like oh this is a slog i've always been like no this is like very compelling that's like exactly what the kind of thing i would need for that sort of thing it's, I, it sounds like almost like reading michael lewis 
um, mm. who wrote The Big Short, which I've not read, but who also wrote Moneyball, which goes into economic theories distilled down to like very understandable terms. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's worth it if you can carve out the time for it. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's very good. And then the last pillar, Jake, is um, I'm, I'm, I'm years late on this, but as a Nintendo Switch owner, I finally got into Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, look, I'm not making headlines here by saying it's amazing that it's a transcendent video game experience. It's all of those things and more. Um, it's the first Zelda game I've ever played. Um, so kind of sitting the bar high there. But um, had a great experience with this. Started it in January. Just finished it this month. Um, makes me want to go back and play like Ocarina of Time, Majora's mm. Mask, some of these games I never got to play. But that's been kind of my video game experience lately. Um, very, very worth playing. I think I might take a little bit of a break from video games for right now and, and like really double down on my reading because um, I'm like finding, I'm getting a lot of energy from that, but I'm really glad I played Breath of the Wild. And it was kind of like um, a bookend of this last year where I really got more into video games where I played Super Mario Odyssey. I got obsessed with Red Dead Redemption and then I played this and like, I can't think of three better games that like are made for me than those three. So I'm just going to kind of like bask in the glory of playing those and figure out what I want to go to next. I can't wait to play it when, when I finally figure out, you know, you need to carve out the mental space. 100%. That's what I need. And when it happens, I know it's going to be a transcendent experience. Wait, Wait until the time is right because it will be oh, more rewarding and you'll you'll have the energy for it. Don't force yourself. Like, fuck that. Like, don't just force yourself because like, oh, we're going to play this. Like, wait until the time's right. Like, it's always going to be there. That's fine. But it will be great when you eventually get it. Yeah. And I was going to quickly shout out, you mentioned book club, which has been really fun. This is the first time either of us have ever been in a book club. Um, yeah. It came out of a, a weekly routine where we played Mario Kart with a group of friends and it turned into both Mario Kart and a book club, which has been one of, I think the yep. most fun outcomes of what has been like kind of a shitty year more globally. Yeah. The other two books that we've read so far in the book club for those keeping score at home have been <laughs> into the wild by John Krakauer and slaughterhouse five by Kurt Vonnegut, both of which I had never read before. Sean, you had read both before. I had read both. Yeah. Um, yep. I loved both. classics. I was, I was happy to read them again, and um, I had a different perspective on Into the Wild this time around, reading it a little bit older. I uh, still really, really enjoyed it, and then I had a transcendent experience reading Slaughterhouse-Five for the second time and enjoyed it more than I did the first. And I think I have perhaps been liking Philip Roth's American Pastoral most of all of the three I so think far. I might too. I think I might too, to be honest. And... After this, we have a mountain to climb because we are, and if any listener wants to take this on with us, now's the time to jump aboard. We're going to read James Joyce's Ulysses, which is 700 pages of, of genre and like literally fiction boundary pushing literature. Like Joyce yeah. redefined like how people think about fiction with this book and it is like considered yeah. one of the hardest books to read in the English language. So I'm very interested in how we face that challenge. I am both excited to dive in and excited to like wrap my brain around the challenge of this book, but also a little apprehensive because I know at parts I'm just going to be like, I don't really know what's happening here. 
I'm extremely apprehensive. From what I understand, each chapter is written like in a different genre style. Whoa. Yeah, like he was trying to do each chapter, like one is a play, one is written like a like a corny romance novel, one is written like blah, like whatever. Like I think every wow. chapter is a different genre from the era. That's fascinating. It, I, I kind of can't wait to see what that's all about. Wow. All right. Well, that was uh, that was a lot, Jake. That was it good was. stuff, though. Um, I think we'll probably keep a similar schedule for yeah. the next one. I think, you know, especially with not that much coming out that's like groundbreaking, I think we're probably okay to wait for another quarter two recap in the summer sometime. So keep an eye out there um, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep posting, but it might just be few and far between. Yeah. Just a different cadence, if you will, to use the buzz term. That's right. That I hear at work That's all the right. time. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, this was good. We'll talk. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Listeners. Sounds good. All right. Bye listeners. Bye, everybody.